Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we have a special guest with us. His name is Jeff Hardy. He's an international healthcare facility futurist and planner and author of the new book, The Care for Peace Manifesto, A Global Mandate to Secure the Second Human Evolution. Jeff, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you. Jeff, our conversation today will definitely enlighten a lot of people, and I'm so excited to start digging in on what this new book um, actually provides, all the insights that it provides. But first, um, we'd like to know what inspired you to write this book, and let, let us know a bit about your own journey. Well, my journey began when I was born, and then my parents took me to Mexico, where I saw an awful lot of poverty, and it just jarred me. It just got me, and, and that's where I realized that there was a difference between how I was being raised in Tony Marin County and the rest of the world was. And so uh, fast forward to when I was a hospital corpsman trainee in the United States Coast Guard Reserves right during the middle of the Vietnam War, and I was serving patients who were coming back uh, from Vietnam, Mekong Delta, most mostly seamen. And I had an incredible aha moment where in the process of caring, I had a feeling that I had never had before. And it was that feeling that was connected to finally what it was I felt I had been missing since that trip to Mexico. And it was then that I realized that there is a connection between care and peace. Well, that connection progressed to the point where I was working in hospitals, Kaiser hospitals specifically, working with nurses. And I noticed something. And my second aha moment was finding out and realizing that most nurses that I met already knew how to care for peace. It was a active caring for a dynamic peace. And I suddenly realized, or I mean, this third aha moment, this grabbed me that our definition of peace is all wrong. It's not the space between wars. It's not sitting on top of a mountain with your legs crossed and looking at a flower or a flame or something. No, those are those are not correct. I mean, the space between wars, uh, you know, is really the reign of terror and the reconstruction. There's no real peace after war at all for anybody. And then sitting on top of a mountain when you're looking down at all the people in the village who need a lot of care, that's not peace either. So it was only in my later life that I was, I sold my company that was a hospital design and planning company to a Fortune 500 company. And then I started my own nonprofit company with some wonderful people. Um, and we ended up in uh, Myanmar, helping them design and build a community development and health center that would be a prototype health center for other townships, 250 of them to be exact, throughout the country of Myanmar. Burma. 
And what's interesting is that it took me 53 hours to fly from San Francisco to Taipei to Bangkok to Yangon in Burma, and then another flight to where we were building our our clinic. And then we had to take a boat for three hours and then hike for an hour and a half to this absolutely far away, deep rural village that would become the prototype community development health center. And it was our attempt to show ourselves as well as the wonderful people who were leading the country at the time on San Suu Kyi and her team at the very top, the Ministry of Health, that care has a direct relationship to the peace that you can have while you are caring. That facility is still up and running. It is a beautiful prototype. The villagers have done even better than we had imagined. And yet the military came in in February of 2001 and wiped out all of our plans and the government. And they performed a coup that left our clinic standing strong, but we no longer could go. So if you want to know the reason why I wrote the book, it's because I didn't have any choice. There was nothing for me to do. <laughs> wow, the circumstances let you there. Um, it's it's incredible what's going on in Myanmar and Burma. And we have interviewed in the past on the podcast uh, political activists and political prisoners that were um jailed um due to this different um government changes um it's interesting that you make this mention of peace not being associated only to war or only like on top of a mountain you know like how can we um perhaps shift our understanding of peace that includes the concept of care and for those ir scholars or people working in the international relations field um we associate peace to the negative peace which is the ceasefire okay with the, the war has ended <laughs> Or to, through positive peace, which is peace building efforts or transitional justice mechanisms and more. But there's an element that, you know, is perhaps seen across the board where peace is seen as an intellectual subject. You know, like how can we, um, you know, form um, truth, truth and justice mechanisms or peace building efforts or media for peace? Um, but there's not an element of emotion there that perhaps with these um, instances that you are referring to, the care aspect brings a lot of empathy and a lot of um, emotions um, that you can find in the healthcare sector. And it's interesting because we, we don't associate peace with hospitals, like hospitals are, you know, sometimes feared <laughs> or it's like, I don't want to go there because there are people that are sick or people that are about to die. But we don't see like actual healthcare professionals do uh, offer um, a new element um, to, to our human evolution. Um, can you expand a bit on that, on this connection of care and the healthcare sector? I appreciate the question because hospitals, the purpose of a hospital is clinical delivery. But the purpose of a nurse, the ones who really run the hospital, doctors, they, they come and go uh, for any individual patient and they tell the nurse what to do and then they leave. Uh, the nurses 
are the ones who are responsible for the caring process. So you have clinical delivery and then you have care. And that's the beauty of the hospital. You've got a combination of clinical delivery and care that work together to produce what patients call a successful hospitalization. Because if they don't have care, then they just get the clinical delivery part. And, and that's where they say, well, I don't, I don't know what happened. I, I didn't really like my help. The food was bad. Boy, the minute they start talking about the food, then you know you're in trouble. But if they say the nurses were unbelievable. And if you go to a hospital and you walk by the nursing station that is in charge of any nursing unit, and you see lots of flowers and chocolates, you know you're in the right place. <laughs> so uh, that's the link between hospitals and nurses. Nurses are the ones who run the hospital that the patients like and the patients relate to. When I was a hospital corpsman trainee, I noticed that the piece that I attained through the caring process also was what the patients attained at the same time. So there was a link, there was an understanding between the care given, the care received, and the peace attained, and the peace promoted and received by the patient. Wonderful link between hospital and patient care. I think a lot of IR scholars or people working in the peace studies will resonate with this understanding because some of them, perhaps that are listening, may already have felt, you know, that just by choosing um, to work in this field or provide support in different programs or different research, um, they they are actually doing their part and they're helping other people to perhaps heal any grievances or, um, you know, during the post-conflict um, scenarios, how to, um, you know, achieve justice or provide support to victims. You know, it's interesting that one of the key aspects of your book included the Care for Peace Manifesto, once again, available already, uh, ready to uh, order. And we are going to be listing down below in the description box more information about the book or where you can find it. But one of the things that you share in your book is that there was a first human evolution, and we are actually moving towards a second one. And um, perhaps for our listeners that may be like, what's the first human evolution? Is that dinosaurs or is that like uh, something, you know, from the empires, the Roman Empire or more? Um, what does actual first human evolution mean? Well, the, the idea of these different evolutions really came to me when I was in a taxi in New Delhi heading for the um, the, the, the Agra Temple. And um, we were in a huge traffic jam and in India. And it was so big that there was no movement except maybe some bicycles and, and you know, going by. But nobody was honking their horn. And I thought it was fascinating. I was sitting in an air-conditioned taxi, and I was looking out at the heat and the people who were just gracefully going through this, this huge mass of cars and these buses that were painted, and they had people 
piled on top, on top of the bags that were on top. And it was, I said, uh-oh, is this what the rest of the world's going to look like pretty soon? And that that's when I started thinking, well, where are we now? Where are we going? And it was within the next couple of weeks, I started thinking about the fact that, you know, this whole human evolution began with, I can say, when tools uh, were being used by humans, sticks and rocks and things. They were using tools. That's about two and a half million years ago. And it really was the time where we started controlling nature, whether it was starting fires instead of going out and getting a stick from a fire that had been started by lightning. You know, we could do it ourselves. And so we, we, we started controlling nature. Well, when did that end? I think it ended somewhere around the mid-60s, around when mutually assured destruction was identified as the place where humanity could wipe itself out and nature too, everything that we know about nature. So I created this thought that the first human evolution was two and a half million years old, and it ended at the mutually assured destruction, and then we are now in what I call the suspended human evolution because there are people, a lot of people, who are still stuck in the first human evolution, and it's not getting us very far at all. We've got overpopulation, overconsumption, overmilitarization, overburdening the planet. I mean, there are so many overs here that I could probably go on and you could add 20 more, but that's where we're at right now. We're we're floating like a Marc Chagall painting of people floating in the air. We're just we are we don't have our feet on the ground today. We don't understand, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Don't hear me wrong about this. We are getting there. There are a lot of organizations, World Health Organization, the United Nations, and all their unbelievable organizations that are part of the United Nations. Uh, look at the Bill and Melinda Gates organization, the food, food program. There are thousands and thousands of people who are connected in their own silos to the need for something better. But we haven't defined what what I'm calling the second human evolution is. We haven't defined it because we really don't know what it is. And everybody might have an idea. Well, this would make the world better if we all did dot, dot, dot. But the problem is that's a silo mentality. We haven't gotten to the global the globalization mentality, even though we use the word globalization all the time, really what we're using the word for is internationalization. But internationalization is not globalization. And that's really where we're headed, where we need to be if we want to define the second human evolution where humanity can continue in perpetuity. So I would say there are four categories of development and assessment and evaluation. And it's very simple. You have an individual level where you look at the individual and that's where we talk about whether, you know, abortion is good or bad. We have a community level, which is, well, what are the laws? What are the beliefs? What are the religions? What are the things? Then you have the state level, which is really your rule of law level. Now that's national. And then finally, you have global. We haven't gotten to the global yet. 
And so when you watch the news on television at night, be thinking about, okay, what's the issue that they're talking about? Is it an individual issue? Is there a relationship between that individual and the community issue? And that's where you have that big argument about abortion and and other arguments where, oh, I don't believe in global warming. Oh, no, that's not true. Oh, that's because we're getting a bunch of stuff from the state. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at individual, community, state, global, you'll realize that all of our arguments and disagreements are floating around the first, second, and third levels, and we got to get past that. So the first thing to do is to recognize where we're at in the assessment process of our responsibilities to the individual, the community, and how that relates to the rule of law. Let's work to getting to the global level, and we do that by planning in a way that doesn't threaten the first, second, and third, the individual, the community, and the state, because it's not going to help. All those arguments down there, and I'm saying down there because look at the abortion discussion. It's, it just keeps going and going and going and going. It's not the discussion we should be having, from my opinion, if we're interested in developing the second human evolution at the global level. I hope that helps. Yeah, um, I think that that's uh, one of the things that we also cover in the IR field, you know, seeing the individual, the state and the system. And it's interesting that sometimes we only focus on the system from um, seeing states as the primary actor, but we don't talk about consciousness of humans. Rather, we just talk about, you know, how states relate to one another and what is the future moving forward based or seeing how states should behave in the system. And what you're proposing, um, and though we may or disagree or agree on the abortion talk or any other controversial topic that fall into the first category that you explain, the fourth level remains untapped, you know, based on what you are um, explaining. And I do think that there's a interesting element there to explore because we don't necessarily focus a lot on the consciousness level or the consciousness of these all levels um, that you are proposing. Um, I wanted to go back just a bit on the 1960s because you said that during that time there was uh, the end of the first human evolution with the possibility of the mutual assured destruction, you know, like, okay, so the planet is going to go extinct or, you know, everybody is going to be wiped out by these atomic bombs or nuclear weapons because that was the game back then and the Cold War terms. Um, interestingly enough, during that decade, um, there was, I think, up to this date in the 20th and 21st century, the biggest amount of peace protests and pacifist movements that were also taking sword during that time. Um, some of them were against the Vietnam War and some were against the Cold War <laughs> and others were into the hippies and the culture and the religion aspect and more. Um, could it be that 
you know, this um, nature element where something dies and something is born, could it be possible that, you know, during that time, the first human evolution was ending, but there was also the beginning of a new level of consciousness with these new protests or peace protests and pacifist pacifist movements that were um, being launched or taking soar? Thank you so much for that. That 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 I, I couldn't say it better. And in fact, it really adds something that I hadn't been including. And I think I will need to include that concept that you're talking about, about all the peace movements um, and also uh, the existential movement that really got to people at the same time saying, you know, they started asking a global question, which is, why are we here? You know, what, what, what am I doing on this planet? You know, is it for killing people or is it, is it for caring for people? So thank you so much for that. And I, you, you talk about the, the, the peace movement. I think, oh, let's see, how many marches did I go to? You know, because I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And believe me, I've been. You were on the hot spot there uh, in the U.S. <laughs> I, I went to Berkeley, but it wasn't to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to the marches. <laughs> That's right. Uh, San Francisco, we had wonderful marches in San Francisco. We had a few really good ones in Sacramento where I went to college. So, um, yeah, no, you bring up a wonderful thing. And I think that, yes, it started, but it's kind of like what we kind of, maybe that also started the suspended human evolution where we all knew the problem in the peace movement, but we didn't know what to do about it. So we kind of went our separate ways and me, I went my separate way. And so it kind of just started dawning on me what needed to be done. And maybe everybody else is out there who was at the peace march is with me, but you know, they've had kids, you know, they've got grandkids now, <laughs> you know, and they're saying, well, wait a minute, remember what it was that inspired us there in the sixties. Maybe now's the time for us to, roll up our sleeves and share what we have learned about whether peace has been something that has taken hold. And if so, where? Because there are places, and I think America is one of the places, I think that we are doing pretty darn good when it comes to the peace effort. My gosh, we're articulating it. We're sharing it. We're doing, excuse, well, look what you're doing. See, you are the, the I don't know, you're, you're the focus. You're the, the focuser. Maybe that's a word, focuser, of this whole movement to push the discussion forward. And there's nothing that pushes the discussion more than someone who is looking at the feminist movements and the, the promotion of women in every single walk of life. Because in my opinion, you guys, you wonderful women, women are the ones who can lead this charge and you're already doing it. So allow me to say thank you for being what, what was the word that we were a focuser? Focuser. Focuser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, that's better than uh, what are they calling the people? An influencer? They're <laughs> uh, no. not into that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, influencer is it just doesn't uh doesn't resonate with me, but that's okay. I like you as being the focuser. Mm -hmm. So thank you for helping focus. You did that with your comments about the whole peace movement. You are absolutely correct.
the explosion, the mutually assured destruction, and the implosion into the peace movement. What a wonderful, what a juxtaposition. Yeah, it is a juxtaposition. And I think people oftentimes focus on the negative and don't see, you know, the possibilities that aspire or that it could be a reaction or it could be like a, a prevention method, you know, like we see the danger coming and we prepare and we try to do uh, all that we can in the communities that we have or with the ideals that we have in order to uh, counteract um, or create a balance. Um, and I think people right now, <laughs> 50 years later, or uh, 60 years, because it was in the 1960s, we are 2020s now, <laughs> um, 60 years, it, it just seems like the last 20 years didn't pass by, we're still stuck in the 20s. And he's like, oh, it's 40 years ago, 1960s, it's like 60 years, almost close to a century. Um we are reaching a point globally, at least in the international relations field, where there's a lot of chaos and a lot of insecurity. And um, there's also a sense of menace that is prevailing in different power um, circles and regions, depending, of course, on the rise of um, the new wars, the different um, conflict scenarios and the trade uh, elements and more if there's um is there a way that we as humans are contributing today to continuing continuing this suspended human evolution what is getting us stuck here that perhaps we are it is preventing us from starting the second human evolution uh it's a good question because I, 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 well, right on the front cover of the book, it says the process is a solution. And we haven't started the process yet. So the, the biggest problem of getting started is that we don't have a process yet. And, and, and the idea of the manifesto came from a book written by Atel Gawande um, for the healthcare industry worldwide called The Checklist Manifesto. The, check, the checklist manifesto. And it was letting doctors know that, that there is a process that you have to follow if you're in that operating room to make sure that everything is there and everybody knows what they have to do and so that the, the surgery ends up becoming something that is a success. You don't leave a sponge inside the person's body. I mean, there's all sorts of you know examples of what's happened that you've heard bad things about. But I think that in order to have a solution to these problems, we have to have a process. So we don't have a process, which, and I need to, to back this up to, okay, how do we start the process? Because you have to keep backing up a lot of times. And what uh, uh, Perzik said in the Zen and mo motorcycle maintenance, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, he said, sometimes you have to back up that, you know, what started out as a communication problem ends up in a philosophic inquiry. And that is exactly what we have to do. We have to have a philosophic inquiry about the process. Now, to get started on the process, what I've done is in the back, uh, the last pages of the book, actually a whole section of the book, The Care for Peace Manifesto, which is now To Care for Peace. That's the new, the new title of the book. Um, there are four templates. 
And these four templates are written so that each person can look at who they are and in relationship to what their prime directive is. Now, that's just like Star Trek and the prime directive. So what's your prime directive? That's the first template. Like, for instance, my prime directive is to care with my heart and my hands. That is my prime directive. And everything else comes from that. Then you look at the second template, which is the relational template. And it's how we collectively look at the first human evolution and what has happened there, and then what should happen for the second human evolution. So it's giving a template for discussion about what these evolutions are, the first evolution, and should be or could be the second human evolution. And it's an opportunity for everybody reading the book to ask themselves, where are you? Where am I in this from to, from the first human evolution to the second human evolution? Example, my wife and I, we decided that instead of like what China tried to do, which is having one child per couple, we decided that we would replicate ourselves, meaning that my wife and I could each have one child. And so we had two child children, and then I got fixed. So we have satisfied the responsibility to the universe, which is population continuity. And I don't call it population content control, because from a second human evolution standpoint, don't we have to be looking at the continuity of humans? and the continuity of the race and the continuity of the earth and our our use of the supplies on the earth population continuity what is my responsibility my responsibility is to replicate myself so that's the second template the third template is really looking at the spiritual and physical the physical and spiritual that has to be balanced in our move forward because there have been so many failures in the past. And when it comes to trying to design a government or based on Karl Marx, you know, to everyone according to their needs and from them according to their ability. Well, what's the spiritual aspect of that? And I think that that was a failure. And that what we need to do is look at what the physical things are that we need. And then what are the spiritual things that we need to, to coincide with that? And that allows us to bring whatever religions that we are connected to or our, our spiritual makeup. It doesn't even have to be a religion. It can be, you know, what really gives us purpose of life. And that's the, the third template. The final template is very important. And it really is de dealing with level three that we talked about before. It's the state level. What is the organizational level of looking at the first and the second human evolution? Are we interested in dominance, uh, curbing the market? Or are we looking at diversity, diversify, diversification? And so I think that what we have to do is use those templates to challenge ourselves in what we what we know. Now, I try to not use the word believe because 
belief really needs to be converted into what we know in order for us to have the discussion on what the second human evolution is, because we can get mired in our beliefs. I think we have to agree, not to disagree ever. We agree to keep talking and back up and back up and back up until we've got something we agree on. <laughs> and, and I think that that's what knowledge is for about, because where we're at now in this world is we have our history in different forms. We've got history of wars and history of countries being taken over, but we also have history of wonderful people like Plato, Socrates, all Aristotle, you name it, and all the, the wonderful people that came after, all the writers, hey, all the movie producers, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all this knowledge that's out there, all the books, the libraries, we've got so much knowledge at our fingertips, we would be remiss at not bringing all of it forward in the discussion of what the human second human evolution process needs to be. And Guan, um, Atul Guan, who wrote the Check and Checklist Manifesto, is a perfect example of somebody who wrote a book about the process. So let's let's look at how people have used process to define something that has to happen. And Guan was very smart. He started his book about airplane pilots. The pilot always uses a checklist before taking off. And thankfully, because I sit in the seats of lots of airplanes, and I'm glad that that pilot has followed a checklist before he took off. And, and uh, so the process is the solution, not the system is not the solution. And I know that AT&T had that wonderful expression, the system is a solution, but that's not true. The system is a, is a result of a process. We have to back up to the point where we look at the process, we define the process, we agree to the process, and then we can get started. I really like that you use these two um, concepts, the spiritual makeup, because, you know, we have makeup as, you know, cosmetics that you can put on your face and you can change yourself to be your verse version or, you know, look beautiful in the mirror or in a camera. But I just read a, a meme the other day that was like, if we um, look more at souls rather than appearances we would not necessarily be following the same people you know like because you know souls have a different um makeup a different um take and um sometimes we uh allow ourselves to be uh, allured by the looks or how good something looks uh, based on beauty standards of our societies that may be different depending on where we are but the second concept and we are reaching today's interview um the end of today's interview that i really um find fascinating is that we are right now at least in this Western world, I cannot speak of a lot of other places, but in the Western world, we are more prone to disagree than agree. It's as if we are on the defensive mode of, you know, because of cancel culture and because of all the different um, societal changes and media and social media um, um, habits and um, trends that are going on that we 
it is difficult for us to find ways to backtrack and get to a place where we agree on something. So if we want to develop a process, if we want to uh, improve the consciousness of the world, or we want to pursue a second human evolution where peace is something that we can achieve and we can feel and we can implement easily, not just through uh, protocols of laws, but actually because people care for peace to be the everyday norm, then we need to find ways where we start agreeing on something because if not, you know, how it can be achieved. And um, to that end, um, I have two last questions um, for today's interview. And one of them is that people may see you know, what the United Nations have been doing in terms of the sustainable development goals or the new agenda for peace as these markers of where to go next as humans, you know, because we need to pursue these goals uh, based on sustainability and, you know, uh, gender equality or peace building, etc., as markers for the 2030 agenda. Um, that is getting uh, fixed after the 2020 pandemic. <laughs> but um, there's also another component in the terms of the private sector where the World Economic Forum is also creating its own agenda to pursue a greener, more just world. So interestingly, in the 1960s, it was the pacifist movements and the peace um, protests. Right now, the conversation is steering towards um, the sustainability and the regenerative practices and the regenerative economies. And I find it very interesting um, as I was listening to you that perhaps there's a, a counter movement to the destruction of nature and the climate change and everything that we are experiencing nowadays that people are moving, perhaps in very rural communities or in specific models to create regenerative communities or this regeneration um, mindset. To that end, um, what would a second human evolution entail? The, the, the answer to that question is right now, it entails the search. Because if you, uh, we really have to decide to for the search, and everybody has to agree to that. That's not a, a difficult agreement disagreement. We are, we either search or we don't. We either face the idea that we need to define truth together, or we're not going to be able to go forward. So it's language is the first thing that we have to do. We have to make sure we have a, a, the same language to have these discussions. Uh, and so what does a second human en entail? Well, I can only talk about the first step because the first step is that process that begins with the search. And my ideas of the first and second human evolution, when I wrote the templates, and those are templates, those are like one or two words for values, attitudes, and goals in the personal, relational, and environmental context. It's on one, each of the four templates are on one page, and, and they're to challenge us to identify the process, but what the first step has to be the search, and these are items that can be used to identify what that search really is. Because it's not, well, we gotta 
we got to grow humanity to the point where we can just send it to Mars and let us start another human colony on Mars that is just as, you know, over blank as we are now. It'll just extend the possibilities of human wiping out the world, the universe, anybody else that, that is out there. So I, I just think that your question, what does the second human evolution entail? The answer is the process. Jeff, we are reaching the end of today's interview, and I would like to know how and where can we order your book, any upcoming events, and other ways that we can support your work and your organization? Well, I was, well first of all, you can get the book on Amazon, and it has the name has changed uh, to To Care for Peace. Uh, and the, the thing about To Care for Peace is that To Care for Peace those words, that little three-word phrase is not the secret of life, but it's as close to the secret of living there is. And what I think people need to do when they look at the book is realize it's writ written for them to take the same challenges that are still challenging me. It's not... And, it's not a, none of it is a foregone conclusion. Challenge it, throw the book on the wall. I don't care, you know, or write your own templates. Don't, you know, you don't have to take what I'm saying. So I think the first thing they have to do when they read the book is to scribble it up, you know, make it theirs, make it something that they can relate to and then talk to other people about it. Cause that's really what's happened. Now I've had a couple of other podcasts where the, um, what did we call you? You're not you're you're the a host. The host, but we we called you the focuser. The focuser, you know, as a focuser, you can take these challenging questions that you've asked me and ask other people the same questions. Get them to start thinking in terms of okay, here's where it was. It's the first human evolution. Where is it going to go? The second human evolution. Heck, what? Where we are now? I mean, these are basic questions. And sure, I might be coining these expressions: first and second human evolution and the suspended human evolution. But it doesn't matter who coins something. What matters is if it can take a grip in the, the discussions henceforth. And that's where the focusers of the world are going to help to help push it forward because we need to be looking at that process. Now, what's next for me? Uh, I don't know. My next podcast, I you know that's about it. I I am not. Um, I don't have any global plans other than I wrote that book. I don't plan on writing another book. I mean, I wrote it because <laughs> I had all this time on my hands, and I. I mean, I was helping the government of Myanmar. I was helping the villages. And all of a sudden, I can't do a darn thing because the military hukuk came in. I can't even talk with the people there because if I do, the government could get in to my emails and say, oh, let's go arrest this person that he just sent an email to and hang him up. Uh, it's it's really, it, 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 it's like just the, the most awful, uh, awful thing that could have possibly happened. And uh so, you know, what's next? I don't know. What's next is the focusers of the world, like you, need to just this discussion forward. And you don't have to put my name on 
just move it forward. Jeff, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We will feature down below all the links um, to the book as well as the work of your organization so people can check it out. And hopefully they reach out to you and seek ways to support your work and give you more things to focus on. <laughs> thank you. Well, you did a great job with the bringing in the 60s peace movement. I can't thank you enough. That's it for today's episode. Please let us know your feedback and any reflections that you have on this topic and others. You can follow us on social media on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at womenhood underscore IR. And if you would like to engage more, consider joining our Patreon community where we host monthly gatherings in English and Spanish languages. With your support, you're helping this independent platform grow. Thank you so much for tuning in and talk to you soon.